So you are the first person to enter the hallowed halls of this imaginary football library where your book, Love of the Game, um, is on the shelves in the Luton Town section, or is it in the Society section? I don't know. Um, because I try and do it. You know how in a library you've got a decimal system. So you've got history yes. here and memoir here and art here. Um, I, I, I want to put yours in the in the early section because it's about, most of it is about playing at Luton Town. Uh, you're not a one-club man uh, because effectively um, you were caught up I call it a proto-Bosman case. So given what you experienced when you were trying to move to Le Havre, when Bosman went to court and won freedom of movement for all footballers, what did, how did you feel? Um, I felt excited for... And again, those sometimes those who are the ones that make the sacrifice don't always get the benefit or the rewards from it. They've paved that way for others to come through now as it is in modern football, you know, we, we were paid uh, via those bums on seats, as you say, Johnny. Those who came through the turnstile, that's where we got our salaries from. And you know, when you're averaging 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 whilst we're in the equivalent of the premiership, it's then impossible to justify giving one or two people you know, a large share out of the revenue they bring in. But nowadays, TV rights are TV rights, and every club gets their solidarity payments, and then they can decide where they push those payments. But, yeah, in, in, in respects to the actual... Um, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, what happened with you in 85? Yes, in 85. It, was it 85? No, it was 89. 89 oh, that late? Wow. 88, after the Littles Cup final, which we won with Ray Harford, uh, under Ray Harford's stewardship, even though it was predominantly players that they repeatedly assembled over the previous five, six years. Um, Ray had come in as John Moore's assistant and John Moore stepped down as a manager, even though we had our best ever finish in the history and we finished seventh in the old first division. Um, but John didn't feel that the, the main role was for him and Ray stepped up as, as the manager. Ray was a 4 believer, I believe, and, and, and enjoyed that enjoyed that system his teams and we'd never played that I'd been at the club 13 years and I'd never played 4-4-2 before so it was one of those that it was difficult to get used to Brian Steen was given a, a free transfer at the end of that season after we won the Lewis Cup and what a great leaving present he, he left for the club in terms of the history by scoring two against Arsenal in the final so you know he, he earned his weight in gold shall we say um, and so Brian had left it was a change. Ray wanted to transition and make a change within, transform the squad, I believe. And he said to me, I, I had two years after my contract at that stage, and he said to me after the final, um, the pre-season when I went back, Ricky, I'm going to do the same that I've done for Brian by allowing you to get a free transfer at the end of this season coming up. Just stay with us, do your best for us, and at the end of the year, we're going to reward you with a, a free transfer, as we had done with Brian. Now, I still had a year left Johnny, on my contract, which I had a signed-on fee, about 33000 So my only concern was, with the, were they going to honour my signed-on fee? Which, can I just say, you negotiated. You didn't have an agent. You were your agent. No, no, I don't have to this day. I've, I've got friends who, you know, helped me out and, and, and put my name forward for certain things when, as and when 
jobs became available. There are very gifted people who are in the industry. I've never signed with one of the main agents that are always out there. Paul Stratford and John Smith, Smith. or Phil Smith. Yeah, none of those. I've never signed with them. So, I, yeah, I negotiated this myself. Um, and it was... I think the contract was in 1987, right to 1990, it was, it was to run. So I'm playing, I'm enjoying my football, it's, it's slightly different. I no longer have my partner in crime there, so Brian's no longer there, but we replace him with someone as gifted as Roy Wegley and the Carford's still there. So you know, I'm not complaining about the quality of the team that we had, and we managed to continue Deliberation, I thought that we were having was the fact that, you know, whether the club would honour my sign on fee um, at the end of that season. I'd lost to Brian, had gone the season there, and then obviously you know, replaced him with Roy Wegley, and Nick Harford was still there. So I, you know, I wasn't complaining about the quality of players that we had at Luton at the time. And then we um, went on a, a similarly good run in, in the cup for whatever reason. We, we, we managed to be. One of those sides that no one would really like to play against because we had good players, first and foremost, and we came to play most most of the time. There was very few games that we weren't um, competitive. And so from that respect, we were a difficult side to play. So, so we got, again, went all the way back to the final against Forest. Um, unfortunately, on this occasion, we didn't manage to pull off the victory, although had been one up at half time and being fairly comfortable, we felt without being overconfident that we were sitting in a good place, knowing who we were, our identity as a club, the group of players that we had, that we could possibly see things through. But straight away after half time, I believe Neil Webb was brought down um, and brought, uh, Nigel Croft took the penalty to equalise. And from that point, it kind of it just drifted away from us and Forest were better in that second half than we were and won it. Now, for me, I had already, up to that point, I'd already engaged with um, Bob Harris, who was the former editor of the Sunday Mirror Sport, and he kindly mentioned to Gerard Houllier that I would be available at the end of the season with a free transfer. Gerard was someone who had expressed his admiration for me, and I'd spoken with him um, on occasions in 1986 when he was at Paris Saint-Germain, he indicated that he would like to sign me. And it went as far as I was in Atletico Madrid with Ron Atkinson. Ron was purported to be getting the job because the president had passed away and they were voting a new president. And we were in the vice president's camp. And Ron had asked me to come out because if he got the managerial position, he would have liked me to be first foreign signing you're only allowed two in those days yeah whilst i was in madrid i was on the phone in my room to gerard Hulia, who was telling me ricky i hope you know if things work out for you but if they don't and you go back to luton please be aware that you know put a clause in your contract for two hundred fifty thousand, um because i want to sign you at christmas we were allowed to sign one player which they used to call the joker in france he said i want to sign you but the president hasn't seen you and the president's like to think that they're buying the players so I've seen you play numerous occasions and you're the person I want. So, so get this in there because Paris Saint-Germain have a lot of money. That's not a problem. I said, okay, thank you ever so much. Went back downstairs, sorted my contract out in the event that Ron got the job, then went back to London. And the, the president had the vote 
for the vacant presidency on Saturday, and the vice president, who thought he was just going to get promoted into the presidency, he didn't get it at that stage, and Jesus Gill got the role, and as you know, he's been there for many, many years. So, back to Luton, I went, negotiated a new contract, had the clause put into my contract, and then just started to pay. That was 1986, so um, rolled on three years. Gerard got fired, sorry, within the period between August and December when he was intending to sign me. So that didn't materialise. But I still had the clause in my contract. I then signed a new contract at 87 that was taking me up to 90. So when Ray Harford indicated that I could look after myself, Gerard again came to, to my rescue and he recommended me to the half who then came over to watch me in a night game, midweek game at Kenworth Road. I went out to meet, to eat with them, and the president and the general secretary, Alain Bersois. Um, that night, we discussed things. They invited me over and my wife, Sharon, to the half to have a look at the place to see if I felt it would be suitable for our family. I've been married three years. We've got two little ones. Mm. Uh, we had Shona before we were married in 84, and then... We had Shane in 87. So gone there. Everything's wonderful. Club scene, very genuine and accommodating. Nice people to, to want to work for. And I come back and um, I then season ends. I sorted my deal out with personal deal with the half. They've come over to receive my registration. And I'm with them. And they're waiting in the foyer. And I've gone to see the manager and I say, Ray, just here to pick up my registration uh, to, to state that I've got a free transfer. And his face he didn't say anything. He sat there somber. I said, um, Ray, I've just come out and said, Rick, I, I can't let you go. And I said, well, what do you mean? All year you've been telling me to fix myself up. You're going to get a free. He said, well, chairman won't, won't let you go. I said, what? People from France are here and they're in the foyer. And he's like looking cheapish and, he said, well, the chairman's upstairs. Do you want to speak to him? I said, of course I do. I went up there and I spoke with Mr. Evans and put my case across as to why I should be granted the free transfer that the manager had promised me. I was controlled and I, and I was not too emotional, but I was factual in respect to, you know, who am I to address when the manager gives me information? Do I come to clarify it with you before acting on that information? So the manager is in essence, the part of the club speaking on behalf of the club. So he was, yeah, I don't care who, how are we going to replace you without 500,000, 400,000 replace you. you know, you're like a son to us. I said, well, every son has to leave home one sometime. And yeah, but Ricky, if they're not prepared to do that, they're not worth to go for, going for. So I said, well, they are downstairs. We speak to them. No response. They were in the foyer. This is the president of the Harv Football Club and the General Secretary, two wonderful people, and Newton Town didn't have the grace to address them and just to be hospital to them, whichever way, hospitable, whichever way it went. We got down to, he said, well, I want 110000 as a drink and you've got to wave your money, that's over to you. So I said, well, I'd like to come to one of your parties if 110000 is is a drink. So he said, well, that's it. Yeah, they're not prepared to do that for you. So I went downstairs, spoke to the delegation from France and they said, we can pay again, but we don't have any more funds in the budget to, to be able to give them any more money as we've budgeted with you and other things. I went back upstairs and said, we can pay again to get some funds in. Not interested. So we left there thinking that I wasn't going to go. But 
I, I left there more convinced than ever that I needed to go. So I went home and I spoke to Sharon and I said, you know, the, the French delegation were leaving the next day and I dropped them off to the hotel down, I think, the Strand at the time. And I went home and said to Sharon, well, you know, they, they denied me having the opportunity because you know, they won't let me go because they want money. So I said, and then Bill Tomlins, the secretary, called me and said, Rick, you know, the chairman is not happy. He wants you to stay. So I think if you offer something, if you offer 50,000 plus, wave your money that's owed, um, I think he'd do that. So I was that aggrieved at that time. Impulse took over. I couldn't afford it. My family couldn't afford it. But I'd given so much to the club, received so little in terms of monetary, in, in monetary terms. You had a testimonial not. in 86. Absolutely, which, again, the testimony committee was great. The club offered their stadium, just facilitated it, which is which is fine, and I appreciate that. Yeah. But outside of that, the work was done by the testimonial committee and, and the, the support of the fans, obviously, who came in and paid their hard-earned money. But you go to Le Havre and there's one sentence, or two sentences, in the book. Uh, I enjoyed my spell playing for Le Havre, my family was settled, and it was a happy time. So I don't I don't know why you haven't really expounded on the Le Havre experience, but I do want to ask you here: what was it like oh, yeah. as a full England international playing in France against? I think some of some of the English players had moved on more to Italy and Scotland. But were there any other Englishmen in France at the time? Yes, so yeah, definitely. Uh, Glenn was there. Graham Rooks was there. Brian Steen was there. Yeah, John Byrne was there. I took Frank Stapleton's position at the half. Mm. My situation with the half was it was it was still enjoyable. The football itself wasn't as enjoyable because the half at the time were Division Two, and Division Two from Division One was a big gap in regards to stylistically. So Division Two, I thought I was going to go out to the half and do a few tricks, really enjoy that attacking, creative style of play on the continent that you'd seen in the Spanish football or French football or German football. And I thought, yeah, my technique's suitable to that. I, you know, I'm going to enjoy that. I went to the half and it was pretty much just similar to English football in respect to the um, combative nature of it. You know, it wasn't really that controlled pattern of play where you go through the, the, the lines with passing, passing, working from the back. It was pretty much um, up and out type of style in the second division. And again, I was used to that so I could cope with that. The greatest, again, maybe it was remiss of me to, to not mention it a little bit more, but the greatest thing I, I learned from the playing side of the half was we had a trainer called Pierre Mankowski. A few years ago, I think he was Raymond Domenech's number two for France, uh, probably about five years ago. And Pierre Mancosti was a wonderful man, spoke limited English, very limited, but he was a very, very good trainer. He, the first one of the first sessions I, 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 took, I took part in, 20 minutes into the session, we're doing, we've done the warm-up, we're now into a session, and then suddenly he stops and he, and he says, tap. And I see all the players stop whatever they're doing, they put their hands against their Adam's apple and throat to try and find their pulse. And they just stay there like this. And he's looking at his watch and he's saying that I believe around 30 seconds have gone. And that's it. And then he goes, and he then asks each individual player what your pulse rate was at that time. Now, I played 14 years in England. I've never <laughs> been asked what my <laughs> pulse rate 
was period funny. So I was just like, what do I do? You know, how do I take my pulse? <laughs> and how do I count in French? Yeah, count cat or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I asked Budgie. So anyway, Pierre was meticulous in respect to preparation of, of, on the physical perspective. We trained. My whole physique changed from three months into France. I've never drunk so much water. They were big on water. The sports science that was evident there was, I've never seen at Linton. Uh, every Monday, Monday was a day off after coming in Sunday after Saturday's game. And then Tuesday would be in the forest, Tuesday morning. Rain or shine, 45 minutes, nonstop running, every Tuesday. Lunch, Tuesday afternoon, back for a circuit, whether that'll be um, a running circuit around the pitch where you've got different obstacles and maybe a bit with the balls and some without the balls and some just body exercises. But you do that at four o'clock and then you go off. Wednesday was a full match, you know, 11 v 11. Thursday was a, a little less uh, of an intense day, but still fairly hard. Friday was shape and set pieces. Saturday was preparing for the game or flying to the next game. And the games were generally eight o'clock at night. So I learned so much about the conditioning and not so much the tactical side of the game. Pierre wasn't that um, not concerned. He, he was just someone who was pretty adamant about physical condition. And you know, to me, I was fitter looking than I ever was before. And I felt great. The games were fine. I did pick up a knee injury in one of the games. Someone came in the back of me and I've done my leg, which kind of kept me out for a good few weeks. But aside, still maintained a great um, run. We had a good team, very nice location, uh, industrial town. And seeing me, I stayed in one place for 14 years. And then I'd moved. And because the move was so good and, and we'd seen a different world and a different language and different culture and family seemed to adapt. And my daughter went straight to a French school, non-English, and she wasn't faced and, and adapted to that. And they think, you know, this, this move thing's not bad. And oh, and John Byrne at the time was in and out of the team. And because he was my mucker and my, mm-hmm. my good friend, it kind of affected me to a degree whereby John was making overtures that he was going to move. I just, I kind of got embroiled in that as well. I think, well, oh, yeah, maybe it might be good if I could go back and get another cup and have another cracker in England. You know, I, I, I've left on a sour note still got something to offer. I had a clause written in for 50000 I could come back um, at the end of that season. And I exercised it with the help of Paul Stratford, to be, mm. to be honest. Oh, OK. Uh, yes, and Paul Stratford, who is... Uh, I'd love to get an agent on. That's probably my next one, because John Smith's book, The Deal, is magnificent. Okay. He was Gary Lineker's um, agent. And it's, uh, yeah. that, I've read that very quickly, because it, it's the mechanics that you don't get if you're writing from a fan or a journalist or a critic's perspective, which is why, Ricky Hill, it is so delightful um, to have you here to talk about your newly published book, Love of the Game, The Man Who Brought the Rooney Rule to the UK, published by Pitt, and it would be remiss of me not to mention the great Adrian Durham, whose voice is football. I think he's, he's one of the voices of football. Did Adrian approach you or did you approach Adrian? Adrian, I have been acquainted and friends for you know, over a decade 
and it just came around. I'd never met Adrian personally. Obviously, I'd heard of him. I'd been away on uh, assignments to faraway places like Trinidad and America. So I wasn't really up to scratch or up to date in regards to talk sport or the the sports medium stuff that that were taking place at that time. But I believe it was something that John Barnes, what, what, what really introduced me to Adrian was John Barnes had said something in regards to, I think it was Paul Lins getting sacked at Blackburn and the, and, the, and the short time and you know the fact that repeat opportunities may not be that easy to find. And I think Adrian covered it on one of his shows and I can't remember the exact um, words that he used but he was trying to say, well, isn't that you know just the same for everyone else type of thing and there's no issue really on, on, on the race element of it. Now, they may not have been and they may have been but I just wanted to impart my thoughts on it to him. So I wrote him a nice uh, email and you know from that moment we we just gotten on fantastically and you know he's taken on a lot uh, taken on board a lot of the things that I've you know, brought to him he's been a wonderful friend brilliant uh, writer journalist and uh, I was um, honoured that he would agree to to do this book and again that just came out of left field too I had started to to write it and work with it and Adrian and I met up and. We were just having a meal, and he said, "Yeah, I'd like to do your book for you." I'm like, "Wow, you know, yeah, please, if you, know, if you think it's someone might be interested in it, great." Because again, Johnny, I've never put myself front and central of anything, and now I am front and central of things. And you know, I don't know how that sits with me. I've always been kind of reserved my personality well one of the things that is noticeable in this book apart from your love of the game and i don't know why you love it so much if it keeps slapping you in the face but more on that shortly um there the acknowledgement section i've never seen so much love in an acknowledgement section it's about 10 pages and i wanted to ask you about two of the people mentioned kieran Keane, aka white don who has had to leave the country to fulfill your potential uh so how is white don he's amazing I speak to him every day, maybe three times a day. If there's someone who has taken me under his wing, even though he's 20 odd years younger, he's seen my value as a mentor, as someone he respects, as someone who grew up in the same area, as someone who his path should have brought together a long, long time ago. Because I, you know, in the book I mentioned Mary Constantine in Wilsdon, which is my amateur club that my brother and his friends created because they weren't accepted into the, even the non-league elements of the semi-pro football together. So they set up their own Saturday team. Now, Kieran, he was always being courted by that team, Larry Constantine, and we had Junior Agogo, Enoch Shuanya, George Bancor, um, Richard Langley, Stephen Bailey, those type of players that had come through just an ordinary street team, a club team that Union Mates had set up and, and then gone on to professional ranks. And he was the outstanding player in the area, in the region. And they would say, go to Constantine because Ricky will look after you. Ricky will try to create an opportunity for you. He, but he didn't know me. He didn't. He heard my name a million times by people down in Northwest London. But he didn't know me. He thought, oh, these people are just trying to get me to, to play for this club. But we connected in America in 2012. He was there working for Nike um, put in, as one of their key trainers, actually putting on Nike sessions throughout the whole country. And 
he just came out to me and said, Ricky, I'm like Kieran, and I know a lot about him. So from there, we just hit it off. Um, he's more than a brother, and he's fantastic at the moment. I mean, right now, he's busily trying to phone all around America to see if he can put my name forward for any opportunities that come available. Yes, you are Ricky Hill, available to work. Uh, although at the moment you are plugging this book, which I, I know everyone in Luton is going to read. And of course, the person who is thanked beyond anyone else. And this is where uh, the story is told in the book. But I do want just to get you to say you sheltered us from what we now know as a cold, cold world with dignity and class that is rarely seen. This is our story. I dedicate this book in your honour. I wish I had a mum like your mum. That is the book I would love to read. Mums of black footballers. Because your mum comes off amazingly. Your parents split when you were two. Uh, She would work three jobs and your dad would come over and see you when she was at the third job. It's that supportive figure. And Raheem Sterling has spoken a lot about his mum, Troy Deeney, likewise. It's the maternal figure that drives a lot of, well, footballers in general. But your mum just seems like, in, Ju- in Judaism, you call her a mensch. She's, she's all that and more, Johnny. You know, she, she was mother and father, confident, sister, brother, but she was wise. Um, yeah, she came over in this country in 1955, hoping to make a better life for herself. And, and then we weren't born at the time. She wasn't married at the time. She then wanted to, yeah, go back to Jamaica. I think that was the plan. You know, within five years after making a little bit of money and then go and live her life in Jamaica. But as life has it, it's not always straightforward. And you know, she met or reconnected with my dad in England. Um, and they've known each other since childhood in Jamaica, going to school, going to the same church. My grandfather and then my dad's father were friends in, in respect to knowing who they are. My uncle always tells me that. My grandfather on my mother's side made his first pair of trousers because he was a tailor as well as a minister, as well as a musician. He was very, very gifted. And as, as I mentioned in the book, uh, he was one of the only ones in the area in 1920s that could read and write to a proficient manner. Um, so my mum came from that stock. All of her siblings became either a minister in the church or a minister's wife of a church. So you know, that discipline, that belief is always part of our, our upbringing she was never one and her saying was the closer they claim to be to God sometimes the further they really are you know she was very very cynical at times in regards to how she'd seen people in the name of God but they still do awful things mm-hmm. so she was never one but she was, a, she was a believer she wanted us to be believers she wanted us to live the right way walk the right way talk the right way go put, you, put your best foot forward all the time whatever that is that you want to do. So I had that shelter. I didn't have the comfort of the modern day parents at this moment in time where, you know, whether it's a comfort or a hindrance, they're always at their son's or daughter's events and got that scrutiny, that micromanagement that's going on. I don't know if that's the best way to, to handle things. I prefer to just stay away and let the youngsters express themselves, find their own way. Of course, I'm there if they need any help to, to talk about things, but at the same time, there has to be that guided discovery. But from my mum's perspective, she was, um, well, sort of the earth. She had issues, obviously. She never once, I never once saw her break down. She didn't know how she was going to pay the rent at times, but she never once let that onto us. She never once showed weakness in front of us. So I'm sure she would have cried 
um, in our private moments. But we also had some very good friends, my cousin Errol, Tyndale, who, mum and dad, my auntie Olive and Uncle Ashley, who are no longer are with us, but they were very supportive for my mum, so... It does take a village to raise a child, and the vi- they're just pages and pages of praise for um, for the people who have come across you in your life. I, I hope that you've printed enough copies to send them complimentary copies for all those who are with us, because you're going to end up just decimating the, the print run. Um, it's unbelievable. Uh, you are appreciated and you appreciate so many. And also, it's a credit to your mum that she has three, three children, one who is a full yes. England international, one who um, went to Canada and did a degree in Canada, and the other, who is a boy who has... Passed away, yes, 10 years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And um, your brother has three degrees. Yes. Why does he need three? Uh, because he's multifaceted in his, in his mind, the way he operates. In fact, it's funny, actually. He, he wanted to be a footballer, I'm sure, but was never invited at those times. And, you know, people would say he was better than me. He was a better footballer. He was left-footed like Liam Brady... You know, he, he was very poised, very creative, very tenacious. But in that era, again, as I've written in the book, black players were seen as persona non grata to a degree. So he had to, what else can I do? So he wanted to maybe go into law initially, the social studies, but then he initially wanted to be a journalist. And he started with um, Richard Keyes at Haters oh, wow. many years ago. Yeah, I bumped into Richard Keyes at the football writers, or I think might have been the PFA did. Big That's part of my twelve years ago. Big part of my upbringing as a football fan, Richard Keyes. Right. So yeah. Richard suddenly said, "How's your kid?" And I said, "Who's that?" He said, "Ian." Yeah, how's, how's your brother? I said, oh, I didn't know you know my brother. He said, "Yeah, we started together at Haters many years ago." So. You know, that's how, how small the world was. But yeah, he went on and to do other things, went to the university, now a mediator for big companies. He's also a saxophonist, uh, a saxophonist teacher, plays in the quintet. So, you know, he was one that always wanted to do something and be something, you know, within the, the, the proper way of going around things. And uh, I'm, I'm proud that he's my older brother and he showed me the guidance to, to live my life in the right way. Yeah, a renaissance man, as they're, they're called.